Hey, Jacob. How's it going? How man? are you? Going all right. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm excited to have you on here. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. How did you uh, actually find the podcast originally? I saw your TikTok and I thought, okay, my life's fucked up. Like, <laughs> I got too good in on this. And yeah. so I started watching the uh, watching the YouTube videos and stuff too. And I was, you know, I saw a lot of similarities in between like even your stuff and other people. And I thought that I'd want to talk about it. <laughs> I love it, man. I'm happy to have you on, Jacob. And uh, yeah, what happened to you? Uh, so when I was eight or nine, I was molested and raped by a younger female. But really, like, kind of tell my story, I kind of have to set up the generational trauma that I have in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mother's family, they were really bad people. They So my great-grandfather molested and raped all of his children. And so my mother's mother was molested by her father. And also, so my mother's sister was believed to be a product of incest. On my father's side, his dad was a heavy alcoholic when he was younger. So he's a very like, I don't know, we used to call him an emotional mute. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because he just, he doesn't like to talk about emotions at all. And my mother kind of has, my mother's father was an alcoholic too. So kind of set it up. My mother she ran away from all that stuff, from the crime in the family, the molestation, everything. And she hid us from them. She didn't give us, give our address. She didn't say anything about them. And so she had this fear, you know, like this deep seated fear, like this generational trauma would continue, you know, Mm -hmm. that not that she would do anything, but that she just didn't want to talk about, you know, sexual things at all didn't want to educate us on anything sex related. So really in our household, anything was shunned. I only saw my parents kiss once when I was growing up. Uh So on top of this, when my mother was 16, she was in a car wreck and it killed her mother, her sister, her stepfather and her stepsister. And she was the sole survivor. Um, She woke up underneath her mother, underneath the um, steering wheel. And she broke like everything and she wasn't ever supposed to have children. So like we're kind of miracle children. Mm -hmm. So as you can tell, I didn't have the best setup (laughs) to start with. So like kind of from the jump, things were going to probably happen bad when I was, yeah, it's, it's, it's better to laugh about it than to (laughs) like be upset about it. Oh, totally, um, man. So when I was about eight or nine, we were in a small town, uh, middle of nowhere, Kansas. When I was there, that's when things started. So I had a friend and started out really innocent, like kissing and stuff. And I didn't know, like, like I'm saying, my parents never said anything about sex or kissing or anything like that. So kissing, I was like, what is this? I have no idea. So when that started, I just thought, okay, this feels all right. You know, like, (laughs) you know, your body kind of betrays you and you're like, this feels good, but I know that I'm not supposed to do this in front of people because I've never seen anybody do it. So what is going on? So that was like the precursor to the rest of the stuff. I kind of started the innocent kissing thing with my abuser, but 
I didn't understand what it meant, you know? My abuser took it to the next level. And I think that they were probably abused before me, molested or raped or whichever. For them to know this stuff at that age, because they were younger than me, for them to know this stuff at that age, something had to have happened. Sure. Um, so and you were eight or nine and she was roughly how old? Seven or eight year gotcha. younger than me mm-hmm. around there. At that time, I didn't know what was going on and it progressed slowly. For a long time, I fought it. I didn't know what it was, and but I knew it was wrong, you know? So for a long time, I was like, oh no, I don't want to do this. You know, this is weird. I don't like this. Mm-hmm. But eventually, as it kept going, you know, things felt better. And I thought it's like that normalizing period, kind of the grooming, like slowly, you know, inching closer and closer until bam. But um, yeah, totally. So it started out, you know, with the kissing and then it started with petting, oral, and then finally intercourse. So that happened for a couple of years. And finally, I was at my grandmother's house with my friend. She would come with us all the time and hang out uh, just because my grandparents, because my parents were so busy, they sent us over to our grandparents a lot. And we went over there every weekend um, Mm -hmm. to my grandparents. So my friend was with me at my grandparents and my grandmother caught her in the act. And my grandmother, because I was the older one and I was the male, said, you need to stop being nasty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She didn't understand what was going on. I've been silent for a long time about this because it looks bad because I'm the older one. Mm-hmm. But when you have no, no idea, like that was never on my radar. So the way she, she worded it, she thought that I was the, the one who was doing it. Like it's hard to, you know, like people have that misconception that, you know, m- women can't rape people or women can't abuse people. So she just assumed that it was me who was the one doing the abuse. So she told my father, and my father, he does this weird thing where he talks to you, but he doesn't really talk to you, and he's completely focused on something else. Um, Mm -hmm. So he gets busy work in his hands or does stuff so that he doesn't have to really talk about it and uh, can interrupt it regularly to talk about the other thing he's doing. So... He's telling me that I shouldn't be doing these things, that I shouldn't do that to my friend. And at the same time, he knows he knows about my mother's family. So he's thinking, I'm part of this family that does these things to people. So mm-hmm. luckily, he never told my mom. But after that, it stopped, completely stopped. And for a long time, I had this guilt. I thought, why did, was it my fault? Should I have never given in? Because like I said, I, I fought it for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Should I have never given in? Uh, should I have kept fighting? Maybe if I said no strongly enough, then maybe it never would have happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people have that guilt. Like, maybe I didn't fight hard enough. Totally. Um, and even if you don't have that guilt, I, I think a lot of people who hear about your story put that guilt on you of like, why didn't you, yeah. you know, why didn't you just say no? And it's so easy for somebody who hasn't been through it to just say that. It seems so simple, but it's in, way more complex than that. And when you say that you were fighting it, like, can you walk through a little bit more about these experiences? Like it started with kissing and when she was initiating these things, like 
what was going on in your head and and how did it escalate to the point where you guys were actually having sex we were left alone a lot like at that time my mother she was working and then she had a lot of depression you know based on all the stuff she suffered in her life yeah so she would she was sleeping like probably 14 hours a day and then she would work and then my dad had really bad anxiety you know growing up with like an alcoholic father and you never know really what's going to happen. So he would sit and watch the TV in his room almost catatonic for hours. So we had a lot of time alone. We were never hungry or never, never in any danger, but it was just like left a lot of alone time. So when we would be in my room and it would start and, you know, my mother would be at work, my father would be outside working in the garage and we would start the kissing and then Uh, She would start to pet me and I would, at first I was like, no, stop. Don't touch me there. You know, like um, I knew kind of the basics. I knew that, you know, nobody should touch you there, but I didn't know why. And Mm -hmm. so for a long time I said, no, stop. And we still do the kissing. So then I finally gave into that. I said, okay, this isn't so bad. It's not the worst in the world. Then finally, the clothes started coming off, and uh, eventually, you know, every step of the way, I fought it. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do anymore. And it, it was like she was testing things to see that she wanted to do on me. I was like a test dummy. But I think, you know, when I really think about it, for this to even start, she definitely had somebody do these things to her. So I don't really blame her. I don't really blame my parents, but I blame the person who did this stuff to her mm-hmm. if I want to assign guilt anywhere. And I, I have no idea who it could be. Yeah. I mean, it could have been anybody. Yeah. And based on my story, you can tell that, you know, really anybody can be an abuser. Anybody, you know, even people that society deems less, less than another person can abuse somebody in a higher level. And once you're sort of compliant with the initial experience, whether that's kissing or touching, whatever the thing is, it's just so much more difficult to speak up once you sort of uh, not agree, but you don't speak up initially. And I also wanted to ask you, like, how did you find out all of this stuff about your mom's grandfather, about him uh, molesting like everyone in her family? Uh, she told us over the years, little snippets. As we got older, she told us more and more. We had an uncle who lived about 30 minutes from us. And uh, one day he showed up at our house. She never gave him the address. She never told him anything about where we were at. He showed up at our house and she said, go inside. Don't come out. Mm. (laughs) And she talked to him out in the yard and didn't let him come in. And so she had to tell us what was going on then. So when, when her family died, she was kind of passed around to distant relatives because she knew that her closer relatives were the, the bad people. So she asked to be with distant relatives, and those distant relatives weren't very nice to her. And so finally, um, she moved in with my foster grandparents and met my dad, and really his family became her family. She calls my dad's mom her mom. So there's that other level of it being a more closer family too. So thinking about like how my grandmother is going to tell my dad anything. My grandma is the kind of person that um, you killed somebody, I'm going to bury the body with you. So she, Mm -hmm. uh, 
would do anything for her children, which isn't always the best thing. Sometimes <laughs> you gotta, sometimes you gotta tell people what's up. But I think in the end, I was a target for the abuse because when I was a kid, I was desperate for attention. I, I'm gay, so I was different from everybody. I have this big secret, and when I was at school, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody because I didn't want anything bad to happen. You know, I didn't tell them anything. I didn't have any friends, and I was this target because I was so desperate for attention from somebody around my age that this friend, I think, kind of sensed that in a way. Maybe didn't know it explicitly, but know that I wouldn't be a person that would ever tell anybody because mm. I don't know anybody else I didn't have any other friends than her so who am I going to tell I'm not going to tell my parents I'm not going to tell anybody else when I was watching your what happened to you podcast I the one big similarity I saw is that the wiggle game yeah. so uh, my abuser called it the feeling game I'm thinking that she got that from whoever did that to her because who even comes up with that maybe maybe in her unadult mind she she came up with that but i just have a feeling that maybe that was something that her abuser did to her call it the feeling game sounds um, all too familiar yeah i i think that that's <laughs> a big part of molestation strategy is you know framing it in terms of a game and i don't think that somebody at that age is thinking to themselves okay i'm gonna you know put this in terms of the game so that you know you Jacob or me can under can will like it you know and enjoy it more I think that it's very likely that she learned that from somebody else yeah yeah I think uh is there like a is there a fucking playbook out there or something like what <laughs> how do they how do they all know what to do like it's like a conspiracy theory almost but um, yes it, it feels like there is a little bit of a molestation handbook when you hear all of the similarities between these experiences they definitely uh they're organized but that's why it's so important to be talking about these things and to register for parents and kids that uh just because it's a game doesn't mean it's right i feel you man yeah the other thing i kind of wanted to talk about is um i think a lot of people have this misconception that like gay people are gay because they were molested or raped when they were a child. Mm. I think it's kind of like the reverse that we're a target because we are gay or because we are different. We are isolated and just easier to pick off than others. Um, do you think that, so did you know that you were gay at the time? I knew that I was attracted to boys, but I didn't know what to call it. Um, mm -hmm. I knew probably since I was in kindergarten. Gotcha. And I knew that it wasn't something to talk about, but... If the abuser is aware that you're gay or has a hunch that you're gay, I think that that would, especially if it's something that you haven't spoken about publicly, then it's almost like you're, you're already hiding a secret, you know? You already mm -hmm. are harboring something. And that probably makes you more likely to keep, to continue to keep a secret if more things happen to you. Do you think that she thought that you were gay and that made her more likely to molest you? Um... I don't think if she knew it consciously, but she knew when I was a kid, there was a lot of bullying, like, you know, you're a faggot, all this stuff, like throughout my family, throughout my friends. And I would be like, no, no, I'm not. Leave me alone. You know, like before I even knew what that word meant, 
I was saying, no, I'm not. Because it just, the way people say, you know, the F word, you know, it, it just comes, it just sounds bad, you know? <laughs> like, sure, yeah. uh, so I think that she knew in not so many words, you know, that I was different and that I was keeping a secret. So we had obviously similar experiences, but they're also quite different in terms of our sexuality and understanding of sexuality at the time, Uh because you knew that you were interested in guys or attracted to guys at that age. And then you're having an experience with somebody of the opposite sex. And I was the opposite where I was attracted to girls, but I was having this experience with a guy and both of us, like you said, had our bodies betray us and that we were still getting aroused by these people that we weren't attracted to. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. how did that impact your sexuality? Did it impact your sexuality? Did it make you question that at all? Yeah. So, you know, I completely forgot about this until now. So I think some of it too is for a long time I thought it because I knew that I wasn't attracted to females. And so that was part of the reason that I didn't want to do it. And I think in the end, why I gave in is because I thought, you know, people, that was about the time that I was figuring out what the F word means. What? <laughs> so I was figuring out what it means to be gay. And I thought, no, I can't, that can't be me, you know? So I need to try this. I need to do this and see if I like it. So yeah. I think there was that other layer of maybe, Maybe I was trying. There was some kind of internalized homophobia or something like that. Like I wanted to say, I knew I could never tell anybody, but I inside I could know, you know, I've been with a girl, so I'm not <laughs> yeah, gay. For sure. <laughs> so so what, I'm, what I was trying to lead into is in my later life, you know, I've hooked up with girls before and I've had kind of this PTSD with it. You know, I don't know if you had any PTSD related to certain smells or certain things or touches uh, give me like kind of a PTSD. So like I was hooking up with this girl and everything was fine. And like in theory, you know, it looks all it, It's good, you know, um, but when I'm there, <laughs> in I'm theory. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in theory, that looks good. That looks fun, yeah. you know, right. um, you know, maybe I'm not so much interested in everything, But then I get there and I'm like, sorry, I can't do this because (laughs) I'm thinking about these things that happened before. But um, so I think, too, that made it a lot harder for me to come out in the end. I'm having that, you know, sexual trauma. It took me a lot longer than I would have. I was 18. I was out of the house before anything happened, before I came out. So Mm -hmm. um, I think it took me a lot longer because of that. And it makes sense. I mean. You know, it's so confusing when you think you have this thing established, but at that time you hadn't hooked up with any dudes either. So, yeah. so it's kind of like, okay, I think I have this inclination, but now my body is responding in this way that is totally the opposite of what I thought. So maybe I'm wrong, you know, it, it's just, uh, you just don't know at the time and it's, uh, it's hard to really make sense of what's going on. So what was it like when you did come out? It kind of brought back memories of like that guilt a little bit but I mean in the end it was good the my parents you know are still like kind of on the fence about it and it's been years but 
I couldn't. I kind of inherited that thing from my father. Like, I don't want to talk about this. Like, yeah. here's a letter or here's a text message. You know, I don't want to talk about this in person. This is too confrontational. For sure. Um, so I kind of did it through text messages and stuff like that. But one of the reasons I wanted to come on, too, is I had been thinking about this a lot more recently because I had brain surgery last July. Um, that was a the most traumatic experience I've had since this childhood trauma. So I had, so back in February of last year, I started getting sick and it was like every symptom in the book, like dizziness, headaches, sick to my stomach, numbness all over. I went to my doctor and I wrote like a paragraph of the symptoms yeah. and they just could not figure it out. Um, I went to the ER and the ER said, well, you're probably just dehydrated. And I said, uh, I don't think dehydrated, like, <laughs> makes your whole, well, maybe it does, but, like, my whole body, I thought, was shutting down. Yeah. And so, finally, I went to the ER a second time. And the second time, they did a CAT scan, and they found out that I had a, a cyst on my brain that was causing pressure on the side. Um, mm -hmm. And so, that was causing the nausea, the headaches. And yeah. when I think about it, I probably had this stuff going on for years because I started out with migraines when I was in college. This is all happening during the start of the pandemic. So this is the point in the pandemic where nobody's going to the hospital. Yeah. Oh, I broke my arm. I'm going to just kind of sit here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like nobody was going to the hospital. Then. So I'm in this empty, gigantic building all alone. You can't have visitors. First time I've been to the hospital since I was a kid. Um, you know, hooked up to all these machines. So I have like a lot of trauma related to like medical places. Now I hate medical places. But um, so then they said, oh, well, we don't think this cyst is causing the problems you're having. And I said, how could it not? <laughs> it's yeah, the only you... thing you found that is wrong with me in all this time. It doesn't make any sense. We... And so they're like, well, if you're having these symptoms, well, let's have surgery. So I go to the hospital I get the surgery done. They, what they do is they insert a tube that comes from my brain into my stomach to drain the fluid. Mm -hmm. It's there permanently. It's called a shunt, a VP shunt. So they cut a crescent-shaped incision here. They inserted, they drilled open my skull. They put the tube in, and then they ran it down through here into my stomach. After the surgery, I couldn't stand up. I was supposed to be out of there in three days. I couldn't stand up because I had so much vertigo. They finally adjusted things and I was able to stand up and get out of the hospital, but it just put me in this horrible, you know, 2020 was already horrible. Everybody was having mental health problems. Yeah. And it put me in this horrible depression because I can't work. I'm laid up. I'm, you know, moving back in with my mother and my brother and I'm just stuck, you know, like, I like who, who would have thought at 26, I'd have to quit my job. I'd have to lose my apartment, have to lose everything, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I moved home and I'm just in this horrible, horrible depression. And on top of that, after the surgery, I have this fogginess. There was days when I would ask my mom, like, am I even here, you know? Because I would just am so foggy and I still have problems with like memory and words and like finding the right word to say um, and stuff like that. And sometimes attention span, but this PTSD that I got from the surgeries started making me think about like my childhood 
um, and it just made it worse. You know, like the thing about depression is it can make even happy memories feel terrible. Yeah, it's like the lens that also, you view the world with. Yep. It also makes bad things 10 times worse than they were. And I was thinking about how all these years I've been silent about this because of what I thought, you know, because I thought there'd be a lot of victim blaming because it happens every day. People are, victims are blamed for um, what happened to them. Yeah. And so I thought about, you know, I saw your TikTok and I thought, I need to get on. I need to let this out finally. Mm -hmm. It's great, man. I'm really happy that you did. It's funny how like you, you never really know what is going to be the catalyst to speaking up. And I think that for a lot of people, they plan on just never telling anybody about it. And when you feel that urge to speak up, and I think that's how I felt with stand up too. It just felt like this thing that needed to happen. And it's really interesting hearing about your experience this year and how you went through this super traumatic brain surgery on top of dealing with depression and everything. And it's like, none of that was apparent to me at all in this interview <laughs> until you started talking about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah. I think that I've always had like a really optimistic viewpoint. And I think that before the surgery, I didn't have the depression. I think the depression was really a result of having the surgery. I think that the fluid started draining and started messing with the chemistry of my brain. Yeah. So I think that the chemistry of my brain is a little bit off still and it's still healing, you know, like when I first started out off the surgery, I was almost catatonic half the time, just sitting there and just staring at the wall because I like just had no focus and it's yeah. been slowly coming back and life is finally coming back to me. And uh, like a lot of what I did to help with the depression was I started working again, I, like improved my life so much because I could finally get out of the house and I could finally do something that would distract me from everything. Yeah. It's so important to be able to have something that you can do and focus on and like work towards. I remember when I was dealing with depression, I felt the same way where you just get into this state of just like, you feel so lethargic and just that like you can't do anything. And then by not doing anything, it makes not doing anything feel so much worse. Cause you're like, not only do I feel like shit, but I'm also not accomplishing anything. And yeah, I do, I do think that the best thing that you can do is something. I mean, really anything like yeah. move around, <laughs> you know, like go outside. It's a never ending cycle of anxiety and depression until you make some sort of a change in the experience that you're having, whether that's integrating something like exercise or meditation or something that you can do differently than how you've been doing things. But it just seems so hard to get pull yourself out of that. But um, when you do, I mean, it's, it's just like you kind of get on a roll. I mean, at least for me, that was how I felt. I was like, okay, like I got my first taste of like sort of feeling okay again. And then I was like, fuck it. Like I'm running with that. Like this is so much better than anything else that I was experiencing. <laughs> and yeah, man, it's wild, you know? And it's also interesting how depression and, and anxiety and these things, you know, I feel like maybe not everybody, but a lot of people experience to some degree these feelings and when you're going through them, similar with molestation, it feels like you're the only one that's 
that gets it. But, you know, so many people can empathize with your story and it's helpful just to know that and just to know that you're not alone. And I also wanted to ask you, like, after your grandma caught you and your friend, caught her molesting you, and you said that it stopped after that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you two ever like discuss what had happened at all after that? Like what, how did that, how did the dynamic change? Yeah. Um, we discussed it maybe a little bit about five or six years after it happened. And, you know, we just talked about how, like, I'm sorry, you know, we both said we were sorry, but we didn't say, we didn't talk about explicitly what happened. Like we just said, you know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry that, that happened, you know. Mm-hmm. But recently, when I was dealing with the depression, you know, she's still my friend, still one of my best friends. And she was wondering, you know, dealing with the, the depression, if that was part of what was happening, if that the depression was because of that, mm-hmm. that it was like those memories were coming back. And I, I can say that it wasn't really part of it. I mean, of course, thinking back on it, you know, with the depression, it seems 10 times worse than it is, but it wasn't yeah. what caused it. And some people have depression, like as a result of something, you know, like a traumatic experience. I, I think a lot of my depression came from the surgery and not so much like something bad happened to me emotionally, but more like physically and medically happened yeah. to me. Once again, we said we were sorry. And she said not so many words that, yeah, something happened to her before me. Mm-hmm. Um, I always, like, it took me years to think about that, like, and when I finally got it, I always wanted to ask, and, but um, I don't think she's ready to tell me who it is, and that's fine, you know, just whenever she's ready, she can tell me, but um, she may never tell me, and that's fine, too, but. um, You've got a pretty amazing outlook on it, man. There's so much value in that forgiveness and letting go of the anger that you had towards that person, and the feelings that they caused you like you said because you know that it was happening to her maybe that makes it easier to forgive i don't know so that's awesome that you guys were able to get to that point and i'm sure she'll tell you about whoever it was that did it to her eventually whenever she's ready i've definitely had a wild life but um when uh i think that where is i going with this Oh God, there's that attention span with the brain surgery happening. For sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Okay, here's what I was going to say. It is still kind of hard, you know. It's still hard, but you never forget, but you got to forgive. And I think a lot of, you know, even my parents, there's some resentment there where they weren't around as much, but I'm still dependent on them. And, you know, I I was so happy to be living at home, even if if I didn't think I was going to be moving home in 2020 uh, at the age of 26 I was so happy to be with my mom who dealt with depression her whole life you know that she could tell me you know what she did to help fight it yeah Uh, and my brother too my brother has issues with depression too so it was very helpful to have them around to tell me how to cope with it because I've had anxiety before but I never had the depression until this until the surgery so I think that it was very helpful. Yeah. It's one of those things that ends up being kind of serendipitous that you were able to be in a situation where in an environment where you're with people that you're close with who know how you're feeling. Uh, Maybe that wouldn't have happened without COVID. Who knows? Talking about being an optimist Mm -hmm. and trying to look on the bright side of things for sure, man. 
And uh, it never hurts to be optimistic. That's one thing that I found, especially with depression, is just like it's a mindset. Again, that lens that you view the world with. If you are feeling depressed, everything that you see is a reflection of that experience that you're having. But if you can look at it optimistically and think, wow, like this may have been even harder. COVID might not have been a thing, but it may have been way harder to deal with this on your own. And that might have been the experience that you had had it not been for uh, COVID. So who knows, you know? Yeah. It was helpful knowing that there's so many people out there that like we all went through a lot of loss this last year. Like even if you didn't lose a loved one, you know, you might have lost your job. You might have lost your apartment. And I was really coming to terms this year, too, with like after the brain surgery with my mortality and like, you know, Mm. like someday I will die, you know, (laughs) like the (laughs) mid 20s, like this isn't going to go on forever. This is this is going to have an end someday. Yeah. And so that was part of the depression, but it was so, it was nice to know that there's a lot of other people that were going, I wasn't going through it alone. So. Mm-hmm. And where are you at with that now? The mortality analysis? You know, it still scares the hell out of me, but uh, I mean, I've been a lot better since October, October, they finally got me on like the right medications and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I finally, you know, Pretty soon I'll be leaving, moving out again. So I'm excited for that. You know, it's scary at the same time to go out on your own. Like I was at a point where I thought, you know, I'm not going to live much longer, you know, because I was, I don't know, I was, when they couldn't figure out what was going on, that was really scary and thinking, you know, this could be the end. Yeah. And so I stopped making plans, you know, I stopped thinking about the future. And to come back from that, it's kind of hard to think like I was thinking about the end. But it's getting better slowly. And I think it's just going to take time and just got to keep myself busy. For sure, man. And I think that there is a lot of benefit that comes from considering death. I think it's different when you're forced to consider it because it might happen like, you know, soon, especially when you're dealing with medical issues. And that's the reason it comes to the forefront of your mind. But whether that's the reason or you're totally healthy and you're just considering what it will be like to not exist anymore, I think that it can create and cultivate an appreciation for the experience that you are able to have right now, knowing that it's not going to last forever. And if you can understand that, seemingly negative statement in a positive way it can lead to a greater appreciation of the things that are going on and the things that you have and have you tried meditation at all i haven't tried meditation i think that might be helpful just because isn't the point of meditation like to clear your mind because a lot because <laughs> a lot yes. of my mind is like this storm especially i because of the antidepressants like antidepressants can make you kind of sluggish Mm-hmm. so it's like hard for me to get up in the morning and get going it's hard to uh take my medicine on time <laughs> i have to have somebody there to tell me you know take your medicine yeah. so there's still days when and even when i take my medicine there's still days where my mind is just this crazy storm mm-hmm. of like things going on like this is the end you're gonna die today you know right right <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> uh it's like, shut up. That's just in your mind. But um, yeah. so yeah, I think meditation might help a lot, but I haven't well, tried it yet. The only time that I've ever experienced depression, it started with anxiety and then it just sort of continued to spiral. And then it got to a point where for maybe six months I was dealing with it and meditation completely pulled me out mm-hmm. and haven't 
been back there since because it changes your perspective on the thoughts and feelings that you're having and you're able to more easily disassociate from like okay these are just thoughts this is just my conditioned mind telling me random things that just never stopped all these horrible negative thoughts popping into your head all day Mm -hmm. you know and meditation if you do it consistently and it doesn't have to be a lot it can be five minutes a day but as long as you're doing it consistently it's that having some point in time every day where you step out of your thoughts and come back to the experience that you're actually having rather than what your mind is telling you is going on that's what for me completely changed my life and um yeah, I, I really can't recommend it enough for people that are experiencing depression or anything like that. So um, yeah, man, give it a shot. It, uh, it, it might help a ton, but I'm so glad that you're at the point where you're at now and are able to speak openly, not only about your brain surgery, but about the molestation that you had. And I wanted to yeah. ask you what kind of advice you would give to somebody who has been through something similar, whether it's molestation, depression, surgery, anything like that. And how are you able to get to the point that you're at now where you're about to go back into the world and and reintegrate with this, uh, with all of these experiences that you've had? What would you say to somebody like that? So kind of starting with like having a trauma or like a, a sexual trauma, I think, the first thing you can do is you can let go of that guilt because a lot of people have that guilt. That was the hardest part. It took years. It took hell. I don't even know if I'm completely like rid of that guilt, but mm-hmm. you've got to let go of that guilt for depression. I think you got to have a really good support system. You know, um, it could be a family member. It could be a friend. Just somebody that can be there for you. Um, and I was so glad I had family. I have, a good fan, a, a family that's supporting me now. And like I said, you just got to, you got to keep moving. You got to find something to do that you enjoy, whether it's a hobby, whether it's your job, something that'll keep you out of your head. Cause I was in my head for so long, especially being laid up in bed, being able to barely stand. You just got to keep yourself busy, you know, and it's not going to help you to lay in bed and just watch YouTube videos about nothing all day. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get out and see people even if it feels horrible. I don't blame you if you, that feels like it's the only thing you want to do. I think some of what really helped me too was like listening to like spiritual music, even if you know, I don't necessarily believe everything and stuff like that. It's kind of comforting, you know, just to listen to like these messages like, hey, things will go on after you're dead, you know? Yeah. And even if it's just like telling my brain like, even if I don't necessarily believe it all, it's telling my brain, oh, I believe this. You know, I don't know how to describe yeah, yeah. it. Like, yeah, for like, sure. There's this song that talks about like the birds don't worry about like uh, where they're going to get their next meal. So why should you? So like, yeah. am I going to die tomorrow? Like nobody else thinks about that. They just keep going. So and even before the surgery, that's how I thought, you know, there was definitely this appreciation after and I came on the other side of it, started to come on the other side of it is that this moment, you know, is the one moment, like, this exists now, and I'm so thankful for it, you know, I'm so thankful that I'm here. Um, I had this huge, like, after you have, like, a life and death experience, you really appreciate everything around you, Mm -hmm. and you really think about uh, how important everything is, even if it seems so little at the time. Dude, totally. Appreciation and and gratitude are 
definite cures for anxiety. And it's interesting how when you start feeling those feelings more, they, whatever experience you're having, whatever feelings you're going through, it'll create more of those feelings. So being grateful for something super small, like water, you know, or like a bed that you can sleep in, it just puts you into that mindset where then more thoughts are coming into your head, like how cool it is to be able to do normal things that you would not be aware of. So that's awesome. Yeah. Listen, man, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for applying to do the podcast. Thank you. And I'm- yeah, thank you. Um, I had a lot of fun. Hell yeah, dude. Glad to hear it. Have a nice day. All right, man. Take care. Bye-bye.